Well, hi, everybody. Good afternoon. Welcome to Milwaukee Mennonite Church. I'm Mark. I guess you didn't know that, huh? <laughs> um, there's an expression in German, klein aber fein, small but nice. And we're klein aber fein today. <laughs> so I'm going to be leading worship today. I want to extend a special welcome to our folks who are with us today on Zoom. John, are you there? Um, hope you had a good weekend, um, but a special shout out to my buddy John. And thanks very much to Stevers um, for managing the technology for today's service. Our summer worship series draws on the book, Let the Children Come to Me, Nurturing Faith Within Anabaptist Families by Lisa Weaver and Elizabeth Miller. Lisa Weaver, many of us know from our sibling church in Madison, uh, Madison Mennonite. It's a book for children, it's for adults, it's for families of all kinds, including church families. And it centers on 12 themes that are central to walking the Anabaptist Christian path. This week's theme, as it's also given at the top of your bulletin today, is the centrality of Jesus. Our focus statement for today is, from, from the, is taken from the book and it's in your bulletin. And I'm gonna read it out loud, please read along with me. A disciple is someone who learns from a teacher. Anabaptists learn from Jesus and commit to live in ways shaped by the life of Jesus. They look to scripture to see how Jesus acted and related to others. Anabaptists seek to keep Jesus at the center of their lives. In today's service, I'm gonna explore the centrality of Jesus in our walk together as Anabaptist Christians. The scripture I've selected for today is a somewhat lengthy one, John chapter four, verses four through 42 which centers on a story that I think is probably familiar to pretty much everybody here. It's the story of Jesus encountering a Samaritan woman at a well in a Samaritan village. My reflection is gonna take the form of moving slowly through the scripture, Divina Lectio sort of style, and then sharing thoughts on it along the way. So rather than hearing scripture first and then riffing on that, I'm gonna be sort of reciting the scripture, we'll be watching it on the screen, and then I'll pause and make a few remarks and we'll sort of um, uh, marinate in, in scripture. Also for our music today, I'm gonna to try out something that I think may be new for us. In lieu of having live accompaniment on piano or guitar or other instruments, I've selected recordings of three songs that are in voices together and fit with the theme of today's service and which I think are singable too. So in other words, the recordings that we have here, first I was thinking, I mean, I always kind of go wild sometimes with like bluegrass versions of gospel and stuff. It's not that singable, I think, for folks sitting in a setting like we are here. So what I've selected are versions that I think, I think will work well for us kind of participating with the song. So the volume will be just a tad lower enough to be able to hear but then we'll have our hymnals and we'll be able to follow and the words sometimes you've noticed uh, with recordings that the words may differ a little bit with the voices together version because the editors have anabaptized <laughs> the uh, uh, the text to a certain extent but i believe for all the the songs there's there are no differences or at least no significant differences with Kyrie lays on you can't do much with that anyway but that's the first one so anyway, we'll see how that goes. Um, I'll be curious to get your, your feelings about that. So let's start off and uh, turn to Voices Together 851 for our call to worship. 
Jesus calls us to praise and prayer, to song and silence. Jesus calls us to hearing and healing, to service and solidarity. Jesus calls us to advocacy and action, to protest and provision. We hear the call of Christ. We worship together with joy. So our first song is going to be Voices Together number 30, Jesus Calls Us, here to meet him. And gender neither 
We now move into a time of confession, and I'd ask you to turn to Voices Together 891 for our prayer of confession today. Please pray with me. For the times we have lied to one another and the times we have been lied to, for the times we have laughed at another's pain and the times we have been laughed at, for the times we have betrayed a friend and the times we have been betrayed, For the times that we have spoken when we should have remained silent, and the times we have remained silent when we should have spoken. In response to that, if you turn to Voices Together 678, this is a Teze song. There are a number of beautiful Teze songs included in Voices Together, and this is um, one, a familiar one. And uh, we're going to be actually singing to a Teze congregation or Teze gathering, singing this together. It's about three and a half minutes, so it's just to give you a sense of how many times it's going to be repeating. But what's really beautiful is that this is a live recording, so what you hear is going to be, what, what you'll be singing to is the congregation, which is international, multilingual, as it often is at Teze. It's located in France, but it's international um, and in many ways ecumenical um, religious community and interspersed the, the antiphones between the Kyrie liaison will be in various languages, so French and German and Spanish and other languages, so it's just kind of nice to, to take that in too. All right, so that was 678.
pecados, o que están privados de recursos, te pedimos, Señor. craft a single reflection on the topic of Jesus is an almost impossible task. In many ways, every worship service in some way represents an attempt to make sense of God and God's will for us through the life and teachings of Jesus. But if I were asked by someone unfamiliar with Jesus to describe who he was, one adjective that comes to mind is countercultural. In so many ways, how Jesus lived and what he taught was and continues to be at odds with how most of the rest of society operates. The core Anabaptist doctrine of nonconformity is grounded in this basic take on how to walk the Jesus way in this world. Our traditional Anabaptist siblings who dress and groom themselves distinctively mark their nonconformity in an overt way. But it's fair to say that all of us, Mennonites, Amish, Brethren, Hutterites, and related groups, conservative and modern, see ourselves as somewhat out of sync with the non-Anabaptist circles in which we move daily. I'm reminded here of a youth from our church who I taught in Sunday school some years ago. I asked the group whether they had ever felt different among their high school peers in some way connected to their faith. This one youth said that in an English class, the question came up about what an appropriate response to a terrorist attack is. And he was the only participant in the discussion who questioned the wisdom of fighting back. The teacher was very surprised, but she was respectful and she commented how a nonviolent reaction to terror had never crossed her mind. Last week, in his thoughts on steadfastness in the face of conflict, Steve had this to share with us. Opposition is normal for the people of the way of Jesus. Radical love, loving enemies, freeing prisoners, bringing good news to the poor, these actions are guaranteed to generate pushback. Accept opposition as normal. Normalize conflict. 
Peter and John, this is from Acts, not our Peter and John, <laughs> remind me that the conflict is not about me. It's about opposition to the love of God. Now, it is true that we are not looking to make trouble. We are not out to cause conflict and then say, it's God's will. In fact, we are called to live in peace with all, as far as it depends on us. We aren't looking for trouble, but as John Lewis has said and done, we will never shy away from good trouble, trouble that comes to us as the result of doing good and standing for justice and peace. Indeed, during much of Jesus' life as described in the Gospels, he was engaged in a lot of good trouble, challenging societal, cultural, and religious norms by interacting with and showing respect and love for people who are on society's margins due to their occupation, their life circumstances, their age, their ethnicity, or their gender. One example of Jesus' countercultural, norm-transgressing biography is the story of his encounter with a Samaritan woman at a well in her home community. So it was a Samaritan village. As many of you probably know, the Samaritans experienced considerable stigma from their Jewish neighbors. I think we can show the, the picture of the woman. There we go. And when I was selecting an image here, there were so many traditional images that I don't think really do justice to the story. So they show, first of all, very you know, Western European white people or whatever sitting around in what looks to be like maybe central England or something. So rather than Palestine, that's one thing. But in all the images that I saw, it's Jesus kind of sitting sort of above and then the woman just sort of like down, kind of like almost in awe of him down below the well. And that doesn't fit at all with the circumstances of the story as told in John's Gospel. This image I like a little bit better, first of all, because it's a photographic image, and it looks like it would be somewhere in the Near East, right, in Palestine, Israel. Um, and we don't see this sort of woman already being put in kind of a subordinate role, and that's gonna be an important thing to sort of unpack here, right? So I, I like this image here. So getting back to who the Samaritans were, they experienced a lot of stigma from their Jewish neighbors in Jesus' time and beyond. Though sharing a common Israelite descendant and an Abrahamic faith that still has much in common with Judaism, Samaritans were regarded by many Jews as heretics and a people to be avoided at all costs. We can go to the next slide too. I was curious to know about the status of Samaritans today. And guess what? There are still Samaritans, less than a thousand. There's somewhere about 800 Samaritans. They're all concentrated pretty, or almost all of them, are, they're concentrated in Israel, Palestine, and basically two communities in what's called also the West Bank of Palestine. It's interesting because they, some of them speak, uh, well, they all speak, they're all basically bilingual. Hebrew and Arabic. Some sort of caucus a little bit more with the Israelis, with Jews, and speak Hebrew more actively and have identity cards that's, that are in Hebrew. And then there are others that interact a little bit more closely with their Arab, Muslim, and Christian neighbors 
and are using Arabic, but many of them actually carry two ID cards with them because they're regarded as sort of still to this day neither fish nor fowl by their neighbors, right? They're regarded, they, their official status in the eyes of both the Israelis and the Palestinians as, as a distinct group, um, of ethnically as well as religiously. They're no longer persecuted as they once were. And this image I like here, it looks like something out of a movie. No, this is actually an image of Samaritans um, at Passover. They're no longer persecuted as they once were, but their relations with their Jewish, Muslim, and Christian neighbors are often strained. All right, let's start working our way through John chapter 4, verses 4 through 42. And I'll read it, and we'll kind of go through and... As I say, I'll sort of riff on, on each of the, the excerpts that I have on the slides here. The um, version I'm using is here is from the Common English Bible. It's a, a translation of the Bible that I um, like a lot because I think it is fairly accessible um, in terms of just kind of comprehension in many ways. Um, it's also uh, hues very, very closely to the original languages. So um, uh, it's not kind of going off the rails as far as content goes. Jesus had to go through Samaria. He came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, which was near the land Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus was tired from his journey, so he sat down at the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to the well to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me some water to drink. His disciples had gone into the city to buy him some food. The Samaritan woman asked, why do you, a Jewish man, ask for something to drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Jews and Samaritans didn't associate with each other. Now the woman's astonishment at Jesus' willingness to not only speak with her, but to ask to drink from the same vessel, this astonishment would have been shared by anyone else witnessing this unusual scene. Jew or Samaritan, which couldn't have occurred in a more public place, in the village well, right in the very center of this community, at noon, the height of day. I'll go to the next slide. Jesus responded, if you recognized God's gift and who is saying to you, give me some water to drink, you would be asking him and he would give you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you don't have a bucket, and the well is deep. Where would you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave this well to us, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So more norm-busting here. The conversation between Jesus and the woman has moved right away from a transactional request for water to a discussion that is moving in the direction of history and eventually theology. Something that is even more unthinkable in this time because this discussion was between a man and a woman. And here also Jesus is displaying his didactic talent. The Greek phrase hydorzon, which means living water, translated as living water, in verse 10 can mean either literally fresh running water, so basically water that you would get from, say, a stream or a creek, not what you would get in a cistern or a well. Or it can mean figuratively living or life-giving water. So he's doing a very, very clever kind of pun here. 
Let's go to the next slide. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be, this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in those who drink it a spring of water that bubbles up into eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will never be thirsty and will never need to come here to draw water. Jesus, the master teacher, and the Samaritan woman, the gifted student, have connected. I'm struck here at how sharp the woman is relative to so many instances where we read about Jesus' disciples who are just not getting it. They're not connecting with Jesus. And they're the ones that are closest to him. Okay, so now we're in for an abrupt change of topic. Go to the next slide. Jesus said to her, go get your husband and come back here. I've been talking about all this water stuff, and all of a sudden it's like, go get your husband and come back. Huh? Right? The woman replied, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, you're right to say I don't have a husband. Jesus answered, you've had five husbands, and the man you are with now isn't your husband. You've spoken the truth. The woman said, sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you and your people say that it is necessary to worship in Jerusalem. Again, it's a little bit hard to follow the line, the thread of conversation here. Now let's move back to the whole husband question here. Generation after generation of critics have read this passage about the woman's history with men as an indictment of her character. But, as others have noted, there are several plausible explanations as to why this woman had been involved with six men that, to, that do not presume at all that she had questionable morals. In any case, note that Jesus does not accuse her of anything impeachable. He doesn't say, go and sin no more, you're a sinner, I'm going to forgive you, don't worry about you. Nothing about sin or bad behavior, just simply stating a fact. What he's doing here also is that he's working another wonder, this time a verbal one, right? So like kind of figuring out who she is and knowing something about her, 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 her past. He's doing this as he works wonders in other instances in the gospel to both keep his interlocutor engaged and also at the same time demonstrate that he is someone special. The conversation then pivots back away from this question about husbands and so forth to a discussion of an important difference between the Samaritan and Jewish faiths, namely, where it was considered appropriate to worship Yahweh, God, namely Mount Gerizim, which is located still today near the West Bank city of Nablus, which is the holy mountain, right, for the Samaritan people. That image that I showed you before, they were on Mount Gerizim. Or, for Jews, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So she's making a reference to a very, very salient difference, but still to this day, between Judaism and Samaritanism. But again, in this dialogue between the two, the rhetorical playing field is a level one between the two of them, right? She's not sort of like cowering down or just, you know, clueless and just taking things from the source. No, she's, and she, she's actually 
guiding the conversation in many ways. She's the one that brings up the whole thing about the difference between the, the mountains. It's great. Let's move to the next slide. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you and your people will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You and your people worship what you don't know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. Now that sounds a little bit sort of ethnocentric. He's just simply stating a fact is that God has made the decision to enter into the world through the Jews, right? It's not sort of like we are the chosen people and you're on the margins or anything like that. It sounds, you know, you read it for the first time and you think, ah, this is sort of, you know, like playing the Jew card over the Samaritan card, something like that. But no, I think it can be read as just simply saying as a, as a stated fact that God is making this entry through him, through the world, through the Jews first, and then through the rest of the world beyond. Back to scripture. But the time is coming and is here when true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. The Father looks for those who worship him this way. God is spirit, and it is necessary to worship God in spirit and truth. I'm going to go to the next slide. The woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will teach everything to us. Jesus said to her, I am the one who speaks with you. Wow. Here we are in just a matter of minutes, right? He has demonstrated who he is. She buys it completely is on his wavelength and is ready to go walking his path. Go to the next slide. So now the disciples come back. <laughs> Just then, Jesus' disciples arrived from their shopping trip in, in, in Sychar. And they were shocked, understandably, that he was talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Presumably directed at the woman first and then at Jesus second. It's like, what, what's going on here? Right. The woman put down her water jar and went into the city. She said to the people, which would be her people, other Samaritans, come and see a man who has told me everything I've done. That's that wonder that he worked, right? The little sleight of hand thing. Could this man be the Christ? They left the city and were on their way to see Jesus. Not only is this sharp woman convinced by what Jesus has revealed, she has the boldness to share what she's learned just now with her fellow Samaritans, whose attitudes regarding women were no more progressive than those held by Jews at that time. So again, this has a powerful impact. This is a woman of status that would have been considered somewhat marginal because of her history, right? Marital history or relationship history. She, come, she was alone at the well. Other critics have said, you know, probably because she was stigmatized in some way that she couldn't go with all the other women to the well at the same time, that she had to go in the heat of the day and that sort of thing. So that may be uh, potentially true as a sign of her, of her marginality. But then she comes back and that there's something in what she says and how she says it that is convincing enough that Samaritans, males and females, are headed back to figure out who Jesus is. In the meantime, 
go to the next slide. The, the disciples spoke to Jesus saying, Rabbi, eat. Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples asked each other, has someone brought him food? Again, so we have this real contrast. I was talking about this kind of like sharp woman versus clueless disciples. Well, here we go. Enter clueless disciples. <laughs> Let me go to the next slide. Jesus said to them, I am fed by doing the will of the one who sent me and by completing his work. Don't you have a saying, four more months and then it's time for harvest? Look, I tell you, open your eyes and notice that the fields are already ripe for the harvest. Those who harvest are receiving their pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that those who sow and those who harvest can celebrate together. This is a true saying that one sows and another harvests. I have sent you to harvest what you didn't work hard for. Others worked hard and you will share in their hard work. Here I think it's very reasonable to read this as a negative comparison between the Samaritan woman and Jesus' disciples regarding evangelism. It's fair to say that the woman is more of a sower than the disciples are. They're the harvesters. We can go to the next slide. Many Samaritans in, this, in that city believed in Jesus because of the woman's word when she testified. Now again, that sounds pretty banal for us, but it's like, this is a big deal. <laughs> because of the woman's word when she testified, right? That was a big deal 2,000 years ago. And in some circles, it's still a big deal today. He told me everything I've ever done. Still kind of dwelling on this verbal wonder that he had uh, made. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Again, knowing full well that Samaritans and Jews were supposed to keep their distance from one another. It wasn't like the Samaritans were like thrilled about welcoming Jews into their homes. They knew that that was a no-no, right? And certainly Jews were not thrilled to be entering into Samaritan homes. But this is a big deal. I'm going to repeat that again. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them. And Jesus stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is truly the savior of the world. Success. The woman has indeed sown very well. Now in this story, which is, fun fact, the longest recorded conversation between Jesus and any other person in the New Testament, in the Gospels. This has the record for the longest conversation, longest discourse that Jesus has with any other individual. Jesus spreads his message beautifully and effectively, while at the same time demonstrating that the good news he has to share is for all people. Everyone including a person who in Bible times would have had three major strikes against them as a Samaritan woman with a potentially checkered past. Everyone is worthy of God's love. I am grateful I have signed up for this lifelong course that Jesus is teaching and consider myself in very good company with alumni like the Samaritan woman.
Please turn to Voices Together 1003 for our congregational prayer. Please pray with me. <clears throat> Compassionate Christ, if you are my light, if you are my life, if you are my jewel, if you are my joy, if I am your dwelling place, may I fully be your instrument that my body, my soul, and my spirit may be holy. Eternal way, lead me. Eternal truth, teach me. Eternal life, revive me. Amen. So our last song is going to be 810 in Voices Together, which is going to be quite familiar. And hopefully the version is going to be singable too. Again, I think all the words should fit here. So Voices Together, uh, 810. Then we'll have announcements. 